This is Brandon Tina. He was born biologically female on December 12, 1972 in Lincoln, Nebraska. Being born as a transgender male in the 1970s in such a small town would have tragic consequences. In the early 90s, Brandon would be beaten, raped, and later murdered in an attempt to silence him after he reported the assault to the local sheriff's office. Brandon Tina's story was immortalized by Hollywood in the film Boys Don't Cry. Brandon Tina and later Matthew Shepard, a young gay man murdered in Texas, would propel America's hate crime laws to center stage in the 90s. This is Brandon's story. Every good true crime YouTuber knows this is the part where we pretend to be a travel agent and tell you about the local industry and short blurbs on the local attractions. So here we go. Today, we're traveling to a tiny town in Nebraska called Fall City. Cue the music. It was a small town built on cornfields, oil, and many of America's favorite commodities. It, like many smaller towns dotting the middle of the country and beyond, were not known for their progressiveness. Being young and growing up in these type of towns was not easy for anyone, it seemed. But this is especially so for anyone that lived outside the status quo. So for some context, researching this video, it was said that a white girl dating a black man was still taboo in Fall City. And one of the victims, one of the other victims, I should say, in the Brandon Tina story was also shunned just for this. So, in the 90s, you had this large divide. On one side, you have New York City and had queer club promoter Michael Eilig and his club th kids thriving. All the while, cross-dressing, flaunting their sexuality on daytime talk shows, no problem. Compare this with America's heartland in Fall City and the divide is stark. This is why you have people like Michael Eilig, who actually was from the same state, moving to San Francisco and New York City to get away from the oppression that they were feeling. The year Brandon was born was particularly tough time for her mother, Joanne. She was only 16 years old and recently widowed when Patrick, Brandon's father, was killed in a car accident. Joanne, being as young as she was, remarried, but this was also short-lived. And she was divorced when Brandon was eight years old. Joanne made do for Brandon and her youngest daughter, Tammy, by working in a retail store, as well as regular disability checks. The small family of three lived in the Pine Acre Mobile Home Park in Lincoln, Nebraska. The Pine Acre Mobile Homes aren't what you typically think of. This is an area that obviously their neighbors took seriously, and many of the homes look like any other suburban area in America. Tree-lined streets, well-manicured lawns, raised porches leading into well-constructed kitchens. The works. Joanne would make the meager money she made last and enroll Brandon and Tammy into St. Mary Elementary and Pius X High School when they got older. She was committed to bringing the two siblings upright with middle class values that mirrored their Lincoln, Nebraska community. Brandon and Tammy couldn't be more different if they tried. Many of the articles I read researching this state uh, point blank that both Brandon and Tammy were abused by an uncle. I wish I could provide more context. Like, was it sustained abuse, a one-time thing? Was he living with them? But it seems this was all that was provided when researching. During his formative years, he was still presenting as female, but in a particularly tomboy way. Everyone remarked about this. It wasn't until he became a teenager that the new Brandon Tina persona came to life. Even then, it was a different name used at the time. 
So everything that I researched on here spent a good amount of time talking about Brandon being a ladies man. So big thing with him is that he had a lot of girlfriends and then even the story of Brandon Tina documentary spent about 20% of the time uh, devoted to the girls that he dated. You know, whether they be girlfriends or just short flings or flirting. Uh, there was a lot made about how he would propose and he was over romantic and just knew how to please the girls in general. So a lot was made in his uh, senior year, how he transformed himself. He was shy, socially awkward, and then out came Brandon. And Brandon was a uh, class clown, he was funny, he he flirted a lot. A uh, very stark contrast to who he was, or you know, Tina, the Tina persona. So Brandon, uh, it seems he came out on the other side, a different person and better for it. However, without a lot of support, his life did unravel as well. So, you know, he's going to this uh, Catholic uh, Christian high school and he's at odds with what the, uh, you know, school's teaching everyone. Um, he also, at the time, there was the uh, Gulf War going on and he found himself caught up in the, you know, the whole uh, propaganda of it, you know, for lack of a better word. And he tried to enroll in the US Army. Um, it was said that he failed the uh, written portion of the test and the main reason that it was reported was that he marked himself as male and they failed him for that, so he wasn't uh, drafted in it. Um, this was obviously a blow to him. With no support and he was dropped out of high school, expelled three days before the graduation in June 1991, he became very depressed. All right, at some point he did try to commit suicide and this, uh, whether it was a cry for help or a serious attempt, yeah, I can't tell. Uh, there's not enough info. But regardless, he was brought into uh, the hospital and the hospital held him for three days, you know, which is uh, the psych hold. Um, that's normal standard procedure. When he came out though, that's when he was diagnosed with this uh, sexual identity uh, crisis. All right, so back then, transgenderism was a mental illness as far as they were concerned. Uh, it does show how much, you know, things have changed from now and then, but it was a big deal. His mother obviously didn't approve of his relationships. There's even a um, story talking about how she implored, Joanne, the mother, employed uh, Tammy, the younger sister, to follow Brandon around and report back to the mother, you know, if it was platonic relations or sexual relations with these, um, you know, younger girls. And obviously, she didn't like what she heard. So I'm sure that played into it as well, plus the, uh, the dead naming and you know, the pronouns. Call it insecurities or the want for love and connection, you know, call it whatever you will. Brandon started to forge checks. And with that money, he wasn't using it on himself. He used it to, you know, woo the girls. He would buy them flowers, big bouquets, um, which, you know, we'll see in this clip here. I can't remember if it was a dozen or two dozen roses sitting there and I had a card and it had a little stuffed cat next to it. Bottle perfume, I'm like, what is all this stuff? He's like, well, will you marry me? So I probably thought about it for a minute. I said, yeah. And he just starts jumping up and down, you know, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you can see here that, you know, he really went above and beyond and he, you know, knew what women liked and he laid it on thick and, um, you know, there was heavy relationships for that. Um, 
didn't seem that many of them were long lasting, but eventually forging checks in Lincoln, Nebraska caught up with him. And due to this, this would set in motion what the rest of our story is really about for the true crime portion. So that brings us to the fall of 1993. All right. In particular, he would be dead by the end of that same year. All right. In the New Year's Eve, the last day of the year of 1993. But at this point, he was looking to uh, start a you know, new life, a new chapter. And with the legal troubles, he decided to move to Fall City. All right. So that's the small little town. It's even smaller than Lincoln. Obviously, Lincoln was a, a bigger town for his depression and um, you know overall it couldn't have been easy you know living in the 90s stressed out uh, with no support from his family or friends he decided to move where no one knew him and he could start anew and you know be Brandon Tina not pretend not have people you know knowing his past he wanted to start brand new so he moves to Fall City it's an odd choice um, I think even the village voice who broke the story back then uh, it was a very gay-friendly uh, newspaper that was free in New York City. I remember reading it. It was great. A lot of rock music and alternative lifestyle stuff. They broke the story. And even in that article, as friendly as it was, they asked, you know, why not New York? Why not San Francisco? You know, today we would ask, why can't Full City, you know, accept that a transgender man would live there? But it is kind of true. It's, it's an odd choice, but, you know, obviously this is where Brandon felt comfortable and it was a very tight-knit town, um, incestuous in some ways. Um, but anyhow, they were tight-knit and he was an outsider, so he was immediately noticed at the, the bar scenes. Um, eventually, he met Michelle Lauder and uh, Lana Tisdale, and T Lana would become his uh, girlfriend. It was actually, seems to be a pretty serious relationship at the time, and um, that would set things into motion. So, one of the big things that the documentary focused on was talking to uh, Tom Neeson, also known as Marvin, and uh, John Lauder, who we'll later find out will be the executioners of Brandon Tina. Um, they would talk about what their time was like when he first came in there. And for all accounts, even the girls would say that it, it was just like a normal uh, male was there. So he would talk about cars, and they would talk about girls, and um, you know we'll play a little clip here just so you can see, you know, in their own words, what their relationship was like for that short few months that he was there. We went out drinking together. We talked about women. We'd ride around and say, "Ooh, what about that one? Mm -hmm. What about that one there?" You know, you know, just guy talk. So eventually, John Lauder and uh, Marvin, Tom Neeson, would we come to know that he was not male, you know, biologically male, he was female. Um, the reason how this happened was that Brandon fell back into old ways and started forging checks. He was forging it from his friends in the Fall City area. And he was doing this to give, you know, extravagant gifts and, you know, eventually caught up. He was arrested in December of 93. When he was arrested, he was put into the, the girl's jail, obviously. His name, his dead name, was printed in the paper, and it was a small town, all to see. And there was a lot of back and forth. Is, uh, is he, she, you know, there was a lot of this back and forth, as you can imagine, small town, gossip, the whole deal. So uh, 
when you eventually get bailed out, so he got bailed out by uh, Lana. Lana actually took a check that was for her to go uh, get her hair done. She used that check that her father gave her and actually wrote it for 250. It was a blank check. So she wrote it out for the 250 it cost to bail out um, Brandon. All right, so now Brandon's back out on the streets. I actually have a pretty good uh, disposition from the, uh, the lawsuit that I transcribed here um, that I want to read out. I think it's actually pretty good. So this is what we're going to look at here. So, on December 25th, 1993, they drove Brandon to a rural area, all right? In the movie, they showed this, this scene where everyone was there, and they bring him into the bathroom, and they pull down the pants, and uh, Brandon's pants, and they make Lana look, all right? But Lana says she did not want to look. Um, you know, maybe she already knew. She didn't care. That seems to be maybe the case here, um, but who knows? Regardless, um... That, that assault, and yes, that's an assault where you're ripping someone's pants down, was bad enough, but it does get worse. Eventually, they would drive Brandon out to a, uh, an abandoned uh, warehouse. All right, so the warehouse was out there, and, you know, it's empty, it's dark. Remember how rural this area is? Uh, just fields, you know, left to the right. There's nothing there. So, scream all you want. Nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna happen. They took turns um, raping Brandon. Yeah. So, someone that they treated as their male acquaintance, their male friend, would go out and talk about girls and cars and drinking and pool. You know, they're having a good time. Now, because they find out it's actually a female, they decided, these freaking boneheads decided it was a good idea, let's, you know, assault. And remember, this is not, uh, you know, from what I understand with rape, it's not a sexual gratification thing, it's a power thing. They want to exert their control over Brandon. Um, they probably felt stupid for not knowing or you know their values didn't match up whatever excuse it is it doesn't matter this was obviously nobody's rooting for these guys um, actually I shouldn't say that I found on the uh, on YouTube there is a page ran by um, John Lauder's girlfriend or wife not sure that uh, he's innocent and that he didn't do it and he still proclaims his innocence saying that you know he didn't uh, you know while he did rape her he didn't murder her We'll get into that later, but, you know, regardless, there are some idiots out there. Um, they took turns, and eventually, you know, they would tell him if he told anyone, if he went to the cops, if he went to his, uh, to the friends, if he told anyone, they would silence him permanently. That was the words. Silence him permanently. So, yeah. Brandon was courageous, very courageous, went to the sheriff's office, and uh, reported this at everyone's urging. So I think that's pretty incredible. However, this sheriff is absolutely disgusting, just as bad as John Lauder and uh, Melvin, if you ask me. Um, there's been a lot made of it, and rightfully so, of his line of questioning. You can tell that he was getting off on, you know, making her relive it and kind of belittle him, you know? So... I'm going to play a little bit of that here. Just note that if you have any uh, sensitivities to that type of subject matter, I'm not sure why you'd be watching this video in the first place, but just note that there's going to be a line of questioning here. What? Yeah. All right, so after you pulled your pants down, I seen you as a girl. What he did? Did he ponder you any? He didn't ponder you any, huh? Didn't that kind of amaze you? After he pulled your pants down, he'd been wanting to take you to bed, and you told him no, that you was a boy and he couldn't do that. Doesn't that kind of 
get your attention somehow that he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit? Huh? I don't want to. I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you're a female that he didn't stick his hands in you. Or your finger in you. I can't believe he didn't. Tom, that name is John, I need to talk to you. It's okay, walk in the bathroom. Walk in the bathroom and John turned around and held the door and Tom hit me once and found the tub. Sit back up and hit me again. I'm falling forward and kicked me in the ribs a hundred times. Stuck in my back. And he picked up my coat, carried me out to the car. Um, I got in the back seat because I knew something was going to happen. That's the one. I did that with him. I did play. Tom told me he did. He did it. 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 He did He was on your back. Would he scratch back in the first half? Yeah. I don't know. He tried sticking your pants down, and you say you never had sex before, is that correct? Right. And which one tried doing this first? Tom. And Tom couldn't get it in you? Huh? He said he couldn't get it in. All right. He said he couldn't get you. He couldn't get it in. Well, I know it hurt. I don't know what time it is. Where are you going? Person with Tom. That's it. That's it. Then Tom got out, and what did he do? Got in the passenger seat. Then what happened? John got out of the passenger seat. Then what happened? John got out of the passenger seat. Then what happened? Then when John got in the backseat, what did he do? He did everything that Tom did. All right. After he got his pants down, he got spread of you, or had you spread out, he got a spread of you. Then, then what happened? Then he well, how did, let's back up here for a second. First of all, you didn't say anything about him getting it up. Did he have a heart on when he got back there or what? I don't know. I didn't look. He didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up or what? Did you work it up for him? No, I didn't. You didn't work it up for him? No. Then do you think he had it worked up on his own or what? I guess no, I don't know. And you've never had any sex before? No. How old are you? And if you're 21, you think you'd have, you'd have trouble getting in? one time to you and then the other guy do one time quit or did one guy do it then the other guy do it and then the other guy come back and do it again and the other guy come back and do it again. They each did it once. You want to file charges against these guys? Yes. You want to sign a complaint against them? Yes. Will you testify in court against them? 
Why do you run around with girls instead of guys being you're a girl yourself? Why do you make girls think you're a guy? I don't know, you have the idea. You go around kissing other girls? The ones the girls that don't know about you think you're a guy. Do you kiss them? Because I'm trying to get some answers so I know exactly what's going on. Now, you want to answer that question for me or not? I have to. Huh? I have to. The only thing is, if it goes to court, that answer's going to, that question's going to come up in court, and I'm going to want an answer for it before it goes to court. See what I'm saying? You what? I have a sexual identity crisis. You want to explain that? I don't know if I can even tell that. So after testifying, or after, I guess, going to the sheriffs and telling the sheriffs about the rape and the assault, John Lauder and Marvin Neeson were absolutely terrified, angry, um, filled with rage, you know, there was probably a lot of emotions going on there, and it all played into what happened. All right, so this is where I want to read the uh, the account. So Neeson testified on behalf of the state and gave the following account. On Christmas Day, 1993, Lauder and Neeson learned that Brandon had reported the rape to the police and began discussing ways to silence Brandon. By December 26, they had decided to kill her. I should say him, so... That's what the actual report says, just so you know. Uh, so by December 26, I'm going to change this here, they decided to kill him. Neeson and Lauder drove to Lincoln, where they had reason to believe they would find Brandon. They had bought a hatchet and some nylon rope, and each brought a change of clothing. According to Neeson, they planned to use the hatchet to chop off Brandon's head and hands so that her, his body would be difficult to identify. Again, if the misgendering here is the article I'm reading, the, the court paperwork, not me. Um, however, their plan went awry when they were unable to locate Brandon. <sighs> Thankfully, I guess he got another day here. However, or another week, yeah. However, failed to locate Brandon on December 26th, Neeson and Lauder continued to plan Brandon's murder. So on December 28th, Neeson and Lauder were questioned by off uh, Officer Keith Hayes of the Fall City Police Department concerning the allegations stemming from Brandon's rape. Note, they were only questioned. They weren't, you know, arrested like they should. Um, anyhow, on December 30th, 1993, Neeson and Lauder went to the house of Lauder's mother, where Lauder picked up two pairs of gloves. They next went to Bill Bennett's house, where Lauder stole Bennett's handgun. After retrieving the handgun, Neeson and Lauder drove to Linda uh, Gutierrez's house to look for Brandon, apparently thinking that Brandon was at that residence. They put on the gloves, and Lauder handed Neeson a knife. Lauder had the handgun in his hand as he walked in through the door. This is Linda's house, by the way. Although Brandon was not at the residence, Goodyear did tell Neeson and Lauder that Brandon was staying at Lisa Lambert's house. Remember Lisa from the beginning here? That was the first house that he moved into. This is in Humboldt. We'll show a little map here of how far that is from Fall City. Okay. So Neeson and Lauder then proceeded to Humboldt to kill Brandon. Approximately 1 a.m. on December 31st, 1993, Neeson and Lauder 
drove Lauder's car to the Lambert's residence. Neeson drove while Lauder gave directions. Along the way, they drove by the deputy sheriff's home, apparently ascertaining whether the deputy would be on patrol that night. So, another fail for the sheriffs here. When they reached Lambert's residence, Neeson drove from down a long gravel driveway and parked the car by the side of the house. All right, and we'll show the picture here. Both were wearing gloves when they got out of the vehicle. Lauder was armed with Bennington's handgun and a knife. All right, so the plan's going forward. After pounding on the door and getting no response, Lauder kicked in the door, and they entered Lambert's home. They entered the bedroom, where they encountered Lambert, who was lying on a waterbed, and her, and her baby was in the crib. All right, so this is the part where it's a little confusing to me. I mean, it's not confusing, like, what happened, but just kind of like, why? I, I don't get this part, but, you know, you, you tell me what you think. Neeson and Lambert were Brandon. Uh, Neeson asked Lambert where Brandon was and then and noticed there was a person under a blanket on the floor at the foot of the bed. All right, so you got the bed right under there at the foot. Why he didn't go under the bed, not sure, but he was right at the foot. Removing the blanket, Neeson discovered Brandon, who apparently had tried hiding. Neeson grabbed Brandon by the arm and stood him up. Lauder then shot Brandon, who fell on the bed. All right, so Brandon's first shot. Brandon continued to twitch after being shot, so Neeson proceeded to ensure that she, he was dead by retrieving the knife from Lauder and stabbing Brandon in the abdomen. All right, so that's right in the stomach. Uh, after stabbing Brandon, Neeson picked up the baby and handed the baby to Lambert. All right, so remember, the baby was in the crib. Picked up the baby... Handed it to the to the mother. As soon as Neeson handed Lambert the baby, Lauder raised the pistol and shot Lambert in the stomach area. But the shot did not kill her. Neeson grabbed the baby and put the baby back in the crib. Remember, this is Neeson's account, or at least the account back in the 90s. All right, then while Lambert was still alive, Neeson asked her if there was anyone else in the house. So... Okay, so she was only shot in the stomach at this point, all right, not the final blow, which will come next. At, while she was alive, Lambert was still alive, Neeson asked if anyone else was in the house. Lambert indicated that Philip Devine was present, so Lauder left the room to find Devine, all right, so Devine was the black male that was dating uh, Lambert's sister. All right, not to get it too confusing, but he was an out-of-town guest. A lot of times, the movies, they didn't uh, add him to the story. Um, there's a lot of confusion on why. You know, was it whitewashing? Was the family uh, not wanting their story out there because there's some indication that might be it? I don't know. Was it easier to tell the story without extra victims for Boys Don't Cry? I'm not sure. But these are all reasons that are offered up. But anyhow, he is another victim in this story, and his name should be remembered. All right, so Philip Devine was present. Lauder left the room to find Devine. Lauder returned to the room with Devine and shot Lambert again. This time, right in the eye. All right, so that's what we see in those pictures. I'm not going to put them on here, but, you know, if you're so inclined to see that type of thing, it's out there. Um, to me, I was kind of surprised that ABC was the one that actually published them. Divine, who had been pleading for his life, was led back to the living room at Neeson's suggestion. So th this poor man, he hears these people being killed. He had to have known that this, like, he was next. Like, the, the, two, uh, the two people in the other room die. You got the Lambert and Brandon. Anyhow, Neeson told Devine to sit down, and Devine complied by sitting on the couch. As soon as he sat down, Lauder shot him twice. All right. 
Lauder then went back to Lambert's bedroom. The record indicates Lauder fired two or three more shots to ensure everyone was dead. All right, so this was an execution at this point. This is bloody, you know, have a chance to maybe live. But no, he wanted to make sure everyone, all witnesses were dead. I don't know how these two idiots didn't think this was going to come back to them. The the vic One of the victims reports a rape and then like a week later, a couple days later, you know, he's dead. Like, it doesn't make sense. They're, they're, they're idiots, you know? And um, anyhow, let's get back to the story. Neeson then went back to the bedroom and suggested that he and Lauder leave. All right. Neeson and Lauder then left the house. So Neeson drove himself and Lauder back to Full City. During the return trip to Full City, Lauder threw the knife in a box containing the handgun into the Nahama River. When they arrived in, San in Fall City, Neeson and Lauder went to Neeson's house, where Neeson's wife, Candy Neeson and Rhonda McKenzie, Lauder's girlfriend, were staying. Neeson washed his hands with Clorox because he did not have his gloves on uh, during the killing when he stabbed Brandon. All right, so remember Neeson uh, stabbed Brandon because he heard gurgling, um, meaning that maybe there was a chance he could have lived. Um, Neeson and Lauder then informed Candy and Neeson and McKenzie that if anyone asked, they were at home at 1 a.m. It was approximately 3 a.m. at that time. All right, so they were home all night. That's their little alibi. And I'm pretty sure, we'll look it up. I think Candy uh, Neeson is the one that made that John Lauder was framed. Um, get out of here. Anyhow. Prior to the Lauder's trial, Neeson was convicted in a separate trial of first-degree murder in the death of Brandon and second-degree murder in the deaths of Lambert and Devine. Neeson did not testify at his own trial, but literally on the eve of Lauder's trial, he made a deal and testified against Lauder. So yeah, Neeson at the time got a, like a sweetheart deal by testifying against John Lauder. And then in the movie, they make John Lauder look like the, um, you know, the main uh, killer, you know, the driving force. However, there seems to be some confusion on this because in recent years, Marvin, yeah, we're not going to give him the, you know, uh, benefit of calling him by the his preferred name because you know fuck him. Uh, Marvin has now changed his story. Now that he's got his sweetheart deal, he's saying that he is the one that killed all three of them. He stabbed them. He shot them. He was the driving force. This is not what he said in open court when his life was on the line. All right, John Lauder was sentenced to death. However, today, right now, 2022, he is still alive. He needs to shut his eyes. And go to sleep. He needs to be done. Anyhow, um, Neeson changed that uh, his story, and he said that he did all the killings, and uh, this gave John Lauder a chance to try to overturn his conviction, saying, "Look, I didn't do it. Here we go." And uh, you know, the courts basically said, "It doesn't matter. You were a part of it," and he was. Who cares? Who pulled the trigger? You were willing to, you raped this, this, this guy who was your friend, you plotted against him, and you were there at the murder. So today, Fall City loudly proclaims it's a changed place and wants to put the Brandon Tina story behind it. Well, when really, maybe it should be putting him in front and center. If we grow from our mistakes, bruises and bumps, a reminder to do things different, maybe a memorial garden or some sort of remembrance could help bridge that gap.